The golden age of New York City nightclubs began on Halloween Eve 1940 when Monty Prosser unveiled his inimitable Copacabana. It died sadly and slowly in 1973 when the doors of the original club closed for good. Back in 2016, I had the honor of speaking with legendary American pop singer Johnny Mathis for a book that sadly never came to fruition. Still, the conversation was one of the highlights of my career. When we spoke, Mathis described the Copa as the highlight of any kind of performance that I was going to do in Manhattan. Um, it was uh, the, uh, the biggest, the most prestigious place that, uh, that you could play. But he also said from a professional standpoint, it was the worst thing that ever happened. With a little help from Mr. Mathis, I'm going to tell you the story of the iconic Copacabana. Pour yourself a martini and give it a listen. Whether it's history, crime, or legend, Stephanie Hoover has that story. Plenty of night spots operated in Manhattan before the Copacabana's doors opened. In fact, several of them were run by Monty Prosser. But the Copa was special. Maybe it was the leggy Copa girls hired for looks over talent who brought the magic. Then again, the hottest bookings didn't hurt either. Eddie Fisher, Xavier Cugat, Benny Goodman, Josephine Baker, Martin and Lewis, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra, they all performed there. Perhaps crowds were drawn to the campy tropical interior with support columns disguised as white palm trees. Says Mathis... It looks like everybody's idea of I Love Lucy. That, that, that's what I kind of uh, sort of equated it to, Ricky and, and Lucille. It, it looked like that. And it was so different to have this sort of um, tropical-looking place in the middle of Manhattan. Or was it the zombie that brought the patrons? That powerful rum cocktail made all the more seductive by Prosser's one-per-customer restriction. In retrospect, maybe there was no singular reason. Maybe the Copa was just a bright, perfectly timed lightning strike. The nation had joined the fight against Hitler the year before it opened. Prohibition had lifted not long before that. Americans sought distraction from the horror of World War II and a place to celebrate once it ended. What better diversion than putting on the Ritz at the star-studded Copacabana? Prosser leased in 1940 the basement space of 14 East 60th Street. Often erroneously called Hotel 14, the luxury residential hotel was originally built in 1902. Its initial footprint measured 62 feet wide and 100 feet deep. Two wings were added in 1905, resulting in a street front addition of 50 feet. The basement was expanded and remodeled as well. There were two entrances to the building. One retained the number 14. The other, the entrance to the Copa, became 10 East 60th Street. 
In its earliest days, the hotel catered to the moneyed Cunard cruising class. Rudy Valley operated a speakeasy on the subterranean level in the 1920s, while the Volstead Act was still the law of the land. In the 1940s, while Copa revelers partied nights away in the building's underbelly, David Ben-Gurion used rooms on the upper floors to contemplate the British withdrawal from Palestine. In 1949, he was elected the first Prime Minister of Israel. Although most New York nightclubs were rumored to have mob backers, according to Prosser's son Jim, Monty's association with gangster Frank Costello was born of necessity. In his younger days, Costello formed an alliance with Charles Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Costello had chosen to head the Luciano crime family in 1937, while the decidedly unlucky Charles served a 30- to 50-year prison sentence. Several years later, Costello put up the much-needed cash to finish the Copa when my father had spent all he had, says Jim Prosser. For 35 years, Costello was Monty's ally and benefactor, but the two men never became true friends. To protect his investment, Costello installed Jules Padel in the Copa. But there was a problem. Post-prohibition, every nightclub employee was to be fingerprinted to prevent criminals from working in the industry. Explains Jim Prosser, Padel, due to a prior arrest, could not operate a nightclub. He therefore hid inside the Copa kitchen, according to Jim, while the club was open to avoid violation of the city ordinance. Mathis remembers a more prominent presence and likens Padel to Dickens' Scrooge. Jules Padel was the guy who supposedly ran the place, and of course he, he did. He sat right by, if you can imagine, it almost looks like a caricature, he sat right by the cash register. The singer recalls Padel questioning every server's ticket and guarding the till. To keep his business partners happy, Padel regularly insisted that Copa performers do a meet-and-greet with his fellow mobsters. They sounded a little with his girlfriends, uh, wanted to impress the girl, so would you mind going saying hello to this man and his table? And he'll buy you a drink. Performers who refused soon learned that saying no was unacceptable. They had even less control over their acts, according to Mathis. During the week, singers and musicians did four shows a night. On Saturdays, they played five shows. As a result of this grueling schedule, Mathis developed debilitating laryngitis. But not going on stage was not an option. Padel told Mathis and other Copa stars, you will sing if you go to my guy. Padel's guy, it turned out, was the notorious Dr. Max Jacobson, also known as Dr. Feelgood. His miracle cure was nothing more than intravenously injected speed. In addition to treating celebrities, Jacobson administered his amphetamine concoction to President Kennedy. It was one of the low points of my life, Mathis admits, yeah, I got involved with Max Jacobson. Could have lost my career. I could have lost everything uh, because of his uh, amphetamines. It got me through, but uh, at, a, at a very heavy price. 
While the entertainers, mobsters, and name droppers made the Copa iconic in New York, newspaper gossip columnists spread its fame nationally. Walter Winchell, Hedda Hopper, Earl Wilson, and others wrote cryptic and often sarcastic weekly recaps of the club's happenings. But Prosser himself created the ultimate publicity juggernaut. He contracted radio station wins platter jockey Jack Egan to broadcast live from the club on Saturday nights, an arrangement that reportedly doubled the weekly revenue. Though Monty Prosser was the public face of the Copa, Prosser and Padell vied for recognition as the club's true operator. Costello, not surprisingly, denied any connection at all. Meanwhile, rumors circulated that the club might be sold. Philadelphia restaurateur Frank Palumbo, also a purported mob associate, was one such supposed potential buyer who denied the claim. Complicating matters even further, performers were rebelling. The American Guild of Variety Artists threatened to withhold acts if unpaid talent fees weren't addressed, but these internal struggles were hardly Prosser's only worries. In 1944, New York City began an aggressive investigation into who really owned the town's nightclubs. Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia spearheaded the inquiry and specifically targeted mob guys like Frank Costello. With only a year's separation between his administration and the notoriously corrupt Jimmy Walkers, LaGuardia made it a personal mission to, as he famously said, drive the bums out of town. And he seemed to focus on the Copa. In October 1944, Prosser paid a $150,000 tax assessment to prevent the club's operating license from being canceled altogether. Always looking for his next project, that same year Prosser traveled to Hollywood to produce movies. Three years later, he had a legit, meaning Broadway, hit with the musical High Button Shoes. It ran for 727 performances before closing. All the while, his New York nightery remained the gold standard, prompting others like Philadelphia's Harry A. Lynn to capitalize on its reputation by simply taking the name for his own joint. By 1948, any control, real or illusory, that Monty Prosser enjoyed at the Copacabana finally and irrevocably vanished. Says Jim Prosser, Monty was bought out for $135,000. It was a devastating blow to my father emotionally and to a large segment of the entertainment industry. Within months, however, Monty Prosser was back in business with a new club called Le Vion Rose, which, when loosely translated, references the phrase, Life Through Rose-Colored Glasses. It had been the title of French singer Edith Piaf's signature song, released a few years earlier. While Mayor LaGuardia's campaign to rid New York City of mobsters was one of the first, it was hardly the last investigation into ties between organized crime and the nightclub scene. In May 1950, Senator Estes Kefauver was selected to chair the Special Senate Committee to Investigate Organized Crime. The 14 cities targeted by that committee included New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all areas where Frank Costello or his associates conducted business. 
The wiretaps in particular gave a vivid picture of Frank Costello as a political boss and underworld emperor, the committee's report said. It then recounted in amazing detail the particulars of Costello's daily routine. He conducted business by home telephone each morning between 8 and 10. Afterward, he went to the barbershop in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, a de facto office where he held meetings. Once the Copacabana opened, it became his primary headquarters. Anyone trying to reach Costello could call the club, and certain in-the-know employees, which likely meant Jules Padel, could advise accordingly. Although Prosser had separated from the COPA prior to the committee's formation, attorney Samuel Becker submitted a letter to the senators reinforcing this fact. The records will show, the letter said, that Mr. Prosser had absolutely nothing to do with the restaurant and that he was forced to sell his interest in the Copacabana last January because, as a minority stockholder, he had no voice in the management for several years. Publicity agent David Charnay further clarified Prosser's situation. When asked if he himself was ever connected with the Copacabana, Charnay said that he had been hired by Monty Prosser in the mid-1940s to act as public relations counsel. Prosser complained that his name was being linked to hoodlums and gangsters, Charnay explained, and that it was being alleged that Frank Costello owned the club. Prosser, at the risk of losing his license thanks to the mob ties, hired Charnay at $225 a week to get the onus of these names off of him. Charnay also discussed Mayor LaGuardia's attempts to close the COPA due to its association with Costello. He relayed to the senators the agreed-upon compromise. The club could keep its license, LaGuardia said, but Costello had to go. When Padel took Costello's place, LaGuardia insisted he also be ousted. To appease LaGuardia, Charnay stepped in as the director of the corporation. He resigned almost immediately, though, when he realized that Padel had never actually forfeited his role as COPA operator. When asked if Monty Prosser was involved in illegal gambling, Charnay's answer was unflattering, but nonetheless beneficial to Prosser from a legal standpoint. Monty Prosser is a very innocuous little man who has concerned his whole life with producing and promoting shows, Charnay said. I don't think Monty Prosser is smart enough to be in the gambling business. Committee Chief Counsel Rudolph Halley did not buy Charnay's Babe in the Woods assessment of Prosser, Evidence indicated, insisted Halley, that Prosser, Padel, Costello, Joe Adonis, and Meyer Lansky were part of a group that operated a gambling club in Saratoga, New York, called Piping Rock. I don't know anything about that, Charnay replied. When his turn came to testify before the committee, Frank Costello promised to answer questions rather than hide behind the Fifth Amendment, as some others had done. Instead, on March 15, 1951, Costello stomped out mid-questioning, announcing he was going directly home to bed. It was a show of contempt that cost him four months in jail. This was followed by an 11-month stint for tax evasion. He again returned to prison in 1956, but that sentence was overturned the following year. 
Shortly after his release, a failed assassination attempt convinced Costello to retire as head of the former Luciano, now Genovese, family. In 1955, Jules Padel paid a quarter of a million dollars to remove the large support pillars that blocked the view of the Copa's dance floor. Monty Prosser's famous palm trees became things of memory. Yet the newly expansive space was no cure for the ailing weekly take. Mathis was also making changes. He no longer wanted to perform at the club. It was a decision that the Copa's owners and his own manager strongly resisted. They did everything except threaten me. You have to remember, I had a woman uh, who was my uh, manager. She was uh, a nightclub owner, and she was accustomed to it, and she was uh, very adamant that, uh, that I uh, continue you know, working there because it was really the, the biggest uh, feather in my cap at the time. Of his time working for Padel, Mathis admits, I must have been very, very young and very, very influenced by all of the hoopla. And, uh, and that's exactly what it, what it was. Uh, but gosh, uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It was necessary for my career at the time. And... I did it, and I found out that it didn't make a damn bit of difference (laughs) in my life or in my career. It was just something that at the time seemed to be the most prestigious, important place uh, that you could perform at. During the 1960s, New York nightclub crowds continued to shrink. Those who did turn out were less interested in formal attire and tuxedoed crooners and more interested in youthful modern music. There were no long lines outside the Copa's doors, no need for the Ray Liotta-style tip stack of 20s dispensed in the now-famous Steadicam scene from Goodfellas. And making matters worse, Governor Nelson Rockefeller was demanding another round of investigations into the city's cabarets. In 1969, Padel disbanded the Epochal Copa Girls. During the celebration of the club's 32nd anniversary in 1972, 72-year-old Padel joked he'd retire when the club turned 64. Frank Costello died of a heart attack on February 18, 1973. Jules Padel's heart stopped less than eight months later. On October 6, 1973, police were called to Monty Prosser's Bucks County, Pennsylvania home. There, they found Prosser's body in the bathroom. Initial newspaper reports offered conflicting theories about the cause of death. One hypothesis suggested that Prosser had taken too many barbiturates and fallen asleep in the bathtub. Another implied Prosser's death was actually a suicide. Conspiracy theorists have posited that Prosser was murdered to prevent his appearance before a Senate committee, probably the least likely of the three scenarios. Only one fact remains crystal clear. No one but Monty Prosser could have transformed a basement on the Upper East Side into the legendary Copacabana. Well, that's my story about 
Monty Prosser and his iconic Copacabana nightclub. With a little help from Johnny Mathis, I think you might have learned a few new things about this historic place to be. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stephanie Hoover Has That Story, and if you did, please tell your friends about me. You can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Just visit my website, stephaniehoover.com, to get all the details. Until next time, be well, be happy, and be kind.